Hello, friends. Just a heads up, this episode contains subject matter relating to abuse and suicide. Welcome to the Sound Lens Podcast. I'm Jillian Wise. And I'm Louise Fagan. And we're here today with our guest, Donald Dehaney, who is an award-winning author, performer, blogger, reporter, stand-up comedian, and TV host. He was on Oprah Winfrey's 200 Survivors episode after the launch of his first book, Father's Touch. We're here to talk about his newest project. Welcome, Donald. Thanks for being here. I'm honored to be here (laughs) with you two. Thanks for having me. Thank you. We're thrilled you're here, Donald, and we're looking forward to a really invigorating, engaging, and insightful conversation. So am I. <laughs> I love the mischievous tone this is already taking. I know what's so funny. That's what, I was wondering if we were going to have fun, but I guess we are, based on this beginning. I hope so. I don't want anything left. <laughs> You've shared a lot in the past about your family history in your previous projects. And so can you tell us why you're writing this latest book? Um, I have to write it. I mean, it, it's actually is saving me. You know, I can't believe I might get emotional this early, but after my brother died two years ago, the depression, oh my God, it's, it's debilitating and, and the guilt. And this, you know what the thing is, I was thinking about this overnight. This is universal. So many people feel the pain of responsibility and guilt and loss. And I never feel alone. That's one thing I never feel. But the problem with depression, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's such an internal thing, right? So my sister, who is the opposite of me, who's so happy and doesn't have the same kind of things in me, I visited her and it was that visit that was like a slap in the face because she just lets things go fly off easier than I do. And I feel I'm too sensitive, right? And I knew that I needed something to give a purpose. And the purpose is to tell Eric's story within my story. So if I could shine a light on Eric and his life, it gave me an extra reason to go forward. Just for the people who are listening who don't know, could you tell us Eric's story briefly? What you're willing Mm -hmm. to share about Eric? Right. So Eric is the youngest of the first set of four children. And when when he was first abused, he said something right away. He's the only one of the four. So he right away told mom, he told us, and it just shook up the house. So even Eric did a lot of the right things. He, you know, people say, just tell somebody. Well, that didn't really solve anything. Nothing really happened because of it. The abuse still continued and Eric had trouble in school. So Eric was like a very real person. Whereas us three, the three older ones had developed different survival techniques. Eric developed nothing. Reaction, act out, 
act out in school. He got put in uh, special ed when he wasn't, he was brilliant. And my father signed for him to go in special ed as a cover for the abuse happening. So he really got screwed by every system, plus religion, plus no one did anything for him. And things got so bad when we, we left our father and things were so bad in terms of everyday fighting and problems at school and in the community. And then we, we went for therapy and, you know, Chill and Zay got involved in different kind of groups. And Eric got placed in a, in a foster home. And that was the beginning of the end. One of my therapists explained to me the dysfunction in our house was love to him. Being placed outside the home was abandonment, even though they were really good people who would provide a good environment, he would prefer this because that was normal. So he tried to kill himself at 15. And, and from then, mental institutions, jail, the street, just a horrible life and incredible that he lived to 54. Mm-hmm. With all that, he still lived to 54. But the, the guilt I have is, see, it's mixed. I couldn't have saved him, but I still feel like I, I should have. So Eric's story is classic. How many people on the street haven't come from abusive homes? And we, we're, you know, as a society, we're still so judgmental to people on the street. But we don't know their story. Mm-hmm. So I, I see them as, you know, faceless, faceless Eric's. So it's changed my thoughts about all that too. Donald, where do you fall in the uh, four children? Were you the oldest or in the middle somewhere? I'm second oldest. Second oldest. My older brother was the golden boy, like master of his ed. And then we, there's four more kids. There's another daughter we found 10 years ago. And then there's three younger ones. And all of us have connected in some way. And it's Eric's death that made me seek out my three brothers. Now, for a long time, it didn't take away the guilt, you know, and then there's, there's three things that happened. One is I remembered that I gave up the first part of my life for my siblings and my mother. And I had forgotten that, you know, I just went on so many different things, but I was a straight A student. I didn't go to college because I had to go to work to take care of my family. Nothing mattered, but my siblings and my mother. So it is why I feel guilty when I did the right things and things didn't work out, you know what I mean? The second thing is my older brother reminded me that the reason why I did a lot of things that looked like vanity is because I wanted to compensate for the publicity on my name 40 years ago in a negative way. I had to upstage that. I did, but, I, but it takes forever. It takes a lot of work. And he reminded me that I did that for all the right reasons to also make Eric's name not a negative. And then the third thing is that I remembered just the last couple weeks that I was the only one who offered myself to my abuser to protect Eric. So with that sacrifice, why should I still feel guilty? Because I saved his life once, you know? And then I thought again, always thinks outside the box. How many people in the world 
who aren't white privileged have had to sacrifice so much for their their children you know they give their life for their children so the relationship the reason why it isn't just that i'm sensitive i there's it's because i feel like a parent to my brother who passed away so understanding the history of a relationship does help mm -hmm. so that's why i'm writing the second book because i have to i also have a darn good story <laughs> you know i told my partner uh that when I first told him that I was going to write the book, he said, I understand why people are interested in the, in the first one, you know, the abuse, but who wants to hear you're happy? <laughs> and I go, really? I go, are you kidding? The first one's the happy one. <laughs> <laughs> and if you really know me, you understand that. But if you, if you don't, I've had, I've told that to a couple of people, they're just aghast. For the people who don't, Donald, for the people who don't know, how would you describe that? Well, because... They, and I can describe it. Thank you for asking, Jillian, because the first book is a person of faith. That the whole entire book, no matter what happens to the person, which is me, I have faith. In the second book, I lose faith. The worst moment of my life is losing faith. Anyone who understands that, who's lived it, will understand that. Losing faith is worse than abuse because there's nothing makes sense anymore. Whatever you got through, there was a reason there was a there was something that you believed in and that's just one part i mean there's 40 years five mothers like <laughs> finding four more siblings i mean there's so many stories yeah. to the second book and the interesting thing is that i have so many of eric's writings that i will be using but i also have writings of my father and i'm going to contrast the two wow because here's the soul that was destroyed by the abuser who is full of hope and love, never gives up faith, wants to believe. And then the, the person who abused, when my younger siblings in the Philippines told him that Eric died, he said, well, it's the religion. No responsibility, no guilt. So. I think people could study our story. It's mm -hmm. a true Canadian story. It's a universal story, but it's specific to Canada. You know, the rural parts of Canada in which we lived and the, the bizarre way of us being known as nice. Most people think I'm nice, even though I tell a, a true story. It's a stunning reclaiming of your brother's voice and your brother's story and and telling it within your own. Well, you are at an advantage because you know me personally. And one of the things about me is that, and this comes from my mother who, I, that woman never complained about anything and she went through everything. I have this thing where I recalibrate fast. The worst thing can happen to me. And I just go, oh, there's a story there. And I go, oh, that's gonna, that's, that's, there's something to learn there. And pain, the painful part of an experience, like a friend disappearing from your life. For them, I think that they think it's bigger than it is for me. And one of the things that I thought overnight is I've lost so many friends, both through death and through, they just, you know, we went our separate ways. 
But one of the bizarre things about my life is, although my family never got an apology for any, you know, anytime we were made fun of, any teacher that disappointed us or any minister or religious person, we were adopted by the world, mm. which is so good. <laughs> I can't tell you the thousands of messages that I've received in my life from strangers. We've been adopted. And it's flipping the adoption thing too, because one of my jokes in my stand-up is, I wish my mother screwed the mailman, right? So that I <laughs> wouldn't have been abused by my father. Wishing that it was adopted so that beautiful souls could take care of me. And they have. It's just such a contrast to your story or those lived experiences that you had. Well, the interesting thing is, because I was a quiet child and no one can believe it, no one knew I was funny. No one. My family didn't even know I was funny because I never said anything. But I think that I thought lines, like I think that I reviewed people, I did my lines in my head, so I was ready once I had my voice. And I do this all the time. I think when mom passed away and she died on the toilet, the first thing I said was, oh my God, she's like Judy Garland and Elvis. <laughs> where my mind goes. When Eric died, the first thing I said was, I'll never be funny again. That's the first thing I thought. So the difference is since Eric died, I see everything through Eric's dead eyes. I, I can't suffer fools. I can't, I can't do it anymore. When you've lost such a close person to you, um, it just, you just feel like time's so limited and the humor part of it is, you know, life-saving. It is actually part of my genetic makeup, right? I mean, I just see humor in the absurd and in cruelty, which is really interesting, right? I'm curious. So to bring us back a little bit, you were talking about, you know, you had all this faith in your first book and now you've lost faith. And I'm curious, is that related to the timing of Eric's death? Was that before that or after? I lost faith in my mid twenties. Mm. So it's not connected to Eric's death, but the journey of my story is, it is Eric's death that took me back to faith. Wow. Because I must believe. And you know, when a person is like, you're in a plane and it's going down, you go, I, I, I believe in you, God, I'll do everything for you. No, I must do everything so that Eric can have a life after this. There has to be something better for Eric. So I must believe for him. And I have to believe there's something better for him. So the journey is faith, decades of lost faith, and then a need for faith. What's that been like the past two years since you've been writing? And you know, you said you see everything through Eric's eyes. Is that with faith or how does that all tie together? It changes everything. I just don't want to do anything I don't want to do anymore. I wouldn't say that I've always been a yes person, but I've been involved in too many things. So I see now where it's the quality of everything. It's the quality of the gig. It's the quality of the friend. It's the quality of the time, the investment. And um, so writing 
I think where I'm fortunate is I have good stories, number one. And the goal is to tell it in the best way possible. So has your relationship with the memory of Eric changed or evolved as you've been writing the book? So I have to start when he, when I first found out he died, I thought that I should maintain some kind of routine to keep my sanity. So I worked out every day as I usually did. I would cry the whole workout. It was just, just excruciating. And, and now I have moments of amazing escape and then I'll go, I'll think about him. And I felt guilty. I felt guilty for having a good time and finding a productive, fruitful life mm. while you have pain is, is the goal. And I'm struggling and not giving up. I was going to ask, I don't know if I'm going to word this correctly and I don't want to like project anything, but do you find that your guilt kind of overshadows a little bit your memory of him because you're having this emotional response to thinking about him? Well, not only do I see the present through Eric's dead eyes, I see everything. I see our history. So I feel like I'm, when I go through my memory of my good times, I imagine what he was doing. And I know that it wasn't happy and it was so much pain. And you know what happens? This is so classic. I'm so glad that we're here because how many victims talk about pain, responsibility, and the perpetrators are never talking about what they did wrong. Mm -hmm. Isn't it interesting? Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and so I find that so telling. And I think that by my being honest about the pain, the journey, the good times, the bad, and I've had so many successes, which at this point, doesn't help. You know, the fact that you did this and this and this, it does not, doesn't work that way. So I know you're in the midst of writing the book now. At this point, is it the book you thought you were going to write? No, because I'll tell you why. I never thought Eric was going to die, which is ridiculous. But I didn't. I really just thought you'd just go on and on and on. And then at some point, it's a miracle, he get it together. So, and so that there, there was no happy ending there. And it was such a shock. So totally colors the book, totally, it, you know, so that there's new relationships, there's the loss of relationships. And, you know, because I see the world so differently because of Eric, I don't see my friends the same way, no, nobody. I don't see anybody the same way. I don't see my partner the same way. And I can't not be that way. If you have this unbelievable happening, you can't go back. You just are this new person and I, and I choose to live. I choose to live. I have to live. I want to live and I want to tell Eric's story and I want Eric to, to Eric's life to have meant something. So, uh, it keeps me going. And I also want to have fun <laughs> because when something unbelievable happens to you, you, and I said to you, the first thing I thought was I'll never be funny again. The other thing is you do is you don't, you don't know if you want to go out of the house and live again. And thank God this came back. I love meeting new people and it's back. Every single new person I meet is a potential great soul. I always have hope. I always have hope. So 
so I'm nice to everybody. And amazingly, you know, for to over 20 years, when I meet new people, I give them their email, my email and stuff. And so I met three people at a show I went to in the last couple of weeks. And I told my friend, they're never going to respond because no one has for 20 <laughs> years. All three of them messaged me. So I'm on a new, I'm on a wow. new track. Oh, it's that energy you're putting out there. Well, I, I just think it's awesome. I just think it's awesome. And they really are great and responding. And so I've also met some other special people and one special person, and it's renewed my faith in humanity, in loving and in kindness and forgiving. So for that to happen, I was like, oh my God, this is meant to be. I think there's things that are meant to be. So mm. I love that someone could have so much pain and have so much hope. Uh, and be open to new things. I just think that's a, a great story. Why do you think meeting someone new made you feel that way? Because I kept, <laughs> I would tell them things about me, you know, like I am, right? I go, oh, well, you know, you can't really like me because you don't know this part of me. And then I tell them something negative about me and they go, no, I think that's great. And I no, you won't like me because I'm like, I'm impossible and I'm this and I'm this. And they go, no, I'm liking you more. And so more evidence of the journey to be the authentic you. The more I am myself, the more I figure out who the real me is, the more I am received in a, in a positive way. So one of the morals of this story is, you know, figure out who you really are if you want to feel loved, right? Just, Absolutely. you got to do the work yourself, right? Yeah. You know, um, it's so true. And the idea of laughter and tears, they're so closely aligned. We know this. It's just a heartbeat from one to the other. And many of us shy away from that. We're afraid of how close those two are. So we would rather numb ourselves or downplay or ignore. But you're doing the opposite. And even more so, I mean, you're embracing it. And living in that line and that is exactly where the stories lie yes absolutely i think uh that the authentic person is the most real person and the most attractive person right and, and you invite it i also think it's okay for someone not to like you so i believe a lot of freedom with this. One of the things that couples do, and you hear this a lot is I, well, we have to do this and we have to do this. Well, Morris and I never do that. <laughs> There's no <laughs> have to, right? Uh, do you want to, what do you want to do? So authenticity runs in many different ways, right? Donald, it's one thing, you know, for you to have lived this story and to know the story and how you want to tell it, but you know, it's another thing to make it public for people. Why decide to share it? Well, with the first book, there would not even be a case or public anything if it wasn't for my sister. I had asked my sister when I was 19 and she was 17, do you want us to use our real names and go through with the case? Both choices, yes and yes. If she had said no, then there would be no case. There would be no story, no book. So, uh, so, in this situation, my mother, when she was alive, and my siblings wanted me to write the book more than I did. 
And in fact, one of the wonderful things about my relationship with Eric is I sent him the book and he said, I loved it and I wish there was more about me. And now I love that I have this second book that there's going to be way more about you, Eric. So wherever he is, he'll be happy. The first book had a very long shelf life. Yeah. I mean, you and there were short films and documentaries. Is that, is that a nice on... way of saying I worked it to death? <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, Louise, I did. <laughs> With your help, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, but my point is, and kudos for you for doing that, by the way, for working it. But um, now that you know the potential for this kind of a story, what do you think is possible for this next book? I see the book as a movie. I see the stories as universal and the Canadian element is so important, but you know, my father was the, let's put it this way, the originator of alternate facts before Donald Trump. <laughs> he was years ahead. He was a master. Trump didn't invent this. This, this original way of lying and it's been done before. And my father was an expert at it. And so, you know, and I, my Twitter tag is the Donald North, which I came up with 14 years ago before Trump ever ran for president. And I thought of it in response to him because he's the only person I've ever experienced in the world who is like my father, Donald Trump. He even looks like him. The, so the charming, many wise, the lying so much that it's the truth. It's the, the symbol of a conservative movement. All those things my father was. Right? So here's the, here's the question. Who plays Donald in the movie? And let's just put this out there to the movie gods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Amber Heard. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, you know, er earlier, uh, Eric, you know, the actor, Eric, who played the, the mask, he would, he'd been good. Uh, Eric he? Stoltz. Eric Stoltz. He would be good. He, he's such a good actor. Number one. You know what I mean? You have to be a person that is able to, to be invisible and then transform into, you can't take your eyes off them. It's that kind mm -hmm. of personality, right? You have to be able Absolutely. to power and then the center of attention. Oh yeah. I've, I've seen you work a room. You guys will love this because if you, I love Marilyn Monroe and Marilyn would go to friends. Do you want to see Marilyn? I do the reverse. Do you want me to see me disappear? <laughs> so I know how to take attention and I can make myself invisible. This is another funny thing. You know, when people say, you know, I never thought you were a good actor. This is an act. I am the actor. I mean, I don't even care. There's not, there's no bad review you can give me. <laughs> I remember my, when I first acting thing I did over 30 years ago, and I took a little course to, to, for the first role. And the first lesson was acting out a victim. So I'm acting out a victim and the instructor says, you'll never pass as a victim. You're the worst victim I've ever seen in my life. I went on my knees and said, thank you, Jesus.
this is, you know, we know so many um, amazing comic actors who then, after they be, have great success in comedy, then take on these very dark, tragic roles. And that's because, as we were saying earlier, you know, how close these two are. Oh, like when I'm with my, two of my best friends and one's a minister and one's an indigenous leader, the three of us are so close because we go from comedy to tragedy in milliseconds. And there's no expectation or rules. We just are what we are. That would be an amazing thing to be able to teach people to think they're amazing and beautiful and original and authentic just the way God made them. That's one of my big things. Why do people keep telling what's, people what's wrong with them? Why don't we tell people what's amazing about them? It's just, I just think, I hope it catches on, you know, pay it forward. Well, pay something positive forward that way. That'd be a great thing, right? Because we don't do it enough. I was a person who was made fun of all the time, 24 seven. And I had this positive, you know, personality. How did that happen? <laughs> right? Because of, uh, because I was adopted by the world. I could get emotional, amazing people like therapists and great people who took me in and taught me that I was amazing and that these people were wrong. And once you are taught that and believe it, the power's gone. They got no power anymore. I don't need the apology letter. I don't need it. I don't need it. I'm on. I'm, I've already moved on. You mentioned wanting to pay positivity forward. What would you hope that your book pays forward to people who read it? I would hope to be less judgmental, more empathy, become kinder to everyone, forgive what you can. And that those would be great things that would improve everyone's quality of life. Okay. Wow. Thank you, Donald. That was. Yeah. Thanks, Jillian. Donald. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Donald just showed up just as he always does. Like he just fully gives of himself and was just so generous with his time and his mm -hmm. feelings and just expressing all of it. Yeah. His vulnerability, authenticity. You know, that's interesting because like, I feel he's obviously spoken about, you know, his family situation and everything that happened, you know, for, for many years. Um, but the fact that he's still finding new insight and I know that Eric's death was a trigger and a, a catalyst, I guess, for some other discoveries for himself. We didn't really get into that much, but he has done some fantastic stand up comedy. I, I didn't think we could know have done that. Whole... <laughs> I, I didn't know. know he did stand up. I had no idea. It's brilliant. It's like very story based. I don't know if you know the comedian John Mulaney. Yes. He's, yes. It's that kind okay. of comedy, which is so hard to do. It's, you have to be very skilled, very adept. Mm -hmm. He never falls into the kind of the usual, like the swearing or the making fun making of other people the brunt of the joke. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It's, you know, you think he's about, he's telling this like very, traumatic story 
And then you get this gut punch of a, of a punchline, which is hysterical. And you're laughing <laughs> about something really, yeah, you know, really that you typically wouldn't. But that's the skill, right? That's the yeah. skill of the storyteller. Yeah. Oh, I'd be curious to, to watch it. I wonder if he'll do it again. I'm about to sip my coffee. Are you drinking anything? <laughs> I wanted to explain why there's like a slurping <laughs> in the podcast. But I really Thank needed a sip of the, coffee. The play by play. <laughs> I am drinking, I'm drinking orange pico tea with oat milk. Um, my go-to every morning is my fave. Okay. Um, what are you drinking? My fave is coffee with oat milk. What? what okay. I know this is, what brand of oat milk do you use? This is a, this is for people who drink oat milk, for people who drink milk alternatives. Yeah. The I brand, this is like an always matters. conversation. It does. Yeah. So currently what I'm using today is the Kirkland brand from Costco. Um, it's mm. pretty good. My favorite is Earth Zone. It's the Canadian brand and it's, um, hi Twyla. And it's delicious, but it's much more expensive. So I only buy it when it's on sale and it wasn't mm -hmm. on sale this week. So. Um, it's Kirkland oat milk, which oat is milk. still really good. What, right. What's your favorite or what are you using this morning? Right. So my favorite is silk, the oat silk. It is so good. It's like just the right amount mm. of thickness, right around a creaminess, um, and still like low in calories. Okay. You said, um, hi, Twyla. Who's Twyla? Where's our Twyla? Oh, oh yeah, she came Twyla over days. when I started talking about my tea. She... Twyla's my dog, my lab. Um, she's so cute. She's looking at me right now from her bed. Normally, she's not allowed down here while we're recording, but <laughs> she's just chilling with the girls this morning. So let's circle back to Donald's conversation mm -hmm. and our, our conversation. Um, I just, I guess I'm curious, Jillian, you know, we, we had some kind of expectation maybe of where we thought the conversation was going to go. So... What are your impressions now that did we go where we thought we were going to? What are your thoughts? I mean, yes, but just Donald's outlook on everything was surprising to me. Like just seeing his perspective and how that's shifted since Eric passed and writing this book. And um, he still seems very positive, but also mm. he's dealing with this grief and it's, impacting his day-to-day -day, as he said about you know how he sees everything through Eric's perspective and I yeah. just made me feel for him yeah I agree with everything that you've just said um and I I guess I'm I'm just amazed too at the continuing and I said this earlier but the the continuing exploration it's like he's in this evolving understanding and working through of life in in such astounding ways that you know a lot of us don't do we don't have the bravery the capacity or whatever you want to call it to to do that um i thought it was really interesting how don was talking quite a few times about how he feels adopted by the world in such a like a positive way and i was just thinking when i was listening to it again like when Donald mentioned that Eric, when he got put in foster care, how he, Eric felt abandoned, even though that was maybe like a safer environment. 
and just that they had two totally different outlooks on that. Like Eric mm-hmm. was taken away from this unhealthy living situation and unsafe living situation and then put in a foster family and he wasn't happy about that felt abandoned and then Donald feels like adopted by the world and all these strangers and mm-hmm. it's just interesting that they have these different perspectives on it mm-hmm. yeah and I guess that just shows how we can you know all be involved in any kind of situation and yet have our own stories around what happened mm-hmm. our own perspectives and experiences mm-hmm. yeah it was a beautiful conversation and I'm so grateful I loved the I loved the um, conversation at the end about the movie version. Let's just say this again. I see that there'll be a movie, another a movie for Donald out of this. I hope so. That'd be so fun. Yeah. What do we wear to the premiere? <laughs> <laughs> I've already got my dress. Let's just get right to this. What are we wearing? <laughs> okay. Not only did we like we've also made the assumption we're invited. <laughs> I was, well. I was about to be like, who are we interviewing while we're there? <laughs> exactly. Oh, my gosh. Yes, we'll get Donald on the red carpet. And then who's ever playing Donald? <laughs> Eric Stoltz. We'll get yeah. Eric or Amber Heard. Whichever yeah. one accepts their mission to play Donald. <laughs> I also, I was just thinking about how... It was. It's amazing how close him and his siblings are after everything mm. and how open they are mm. to talking about it and talking about their past with each other. And I wonder if it was because of Eric speaking up all those years ago. You know, like if they weren't saying anything at home and like talking about it at all, then Eric speaks up. And then now him wow. and his siblings talk about it so openly. Mm. That's a really good observation. Wow. You know, I, I mean, I don't want to become philosophical about things that I, I'm not equipped to be talking about, right. you know, yeah. but I, I do see exactly what you're saying. And I, I love people finding their voice and giving voice to, and he had his voice very young and it was taken away. And mm-hmm. Eric, that I'm talking about, and yeah. Donald has given, is giving him his voice back. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, because I know Donald and, and know this story a bit, more um i know that eric was a prolific writer and illustrator and sent donald and had in his possessions illustrations throughout you know from his whole life and donald kept those Mm -hmm. the other thing that we didn't talk about is that his siblings are also very creative his sister has a gorgeous singing voice as does donald also a singer i didn't know that yeah his older brother is a fabulous photographer like absolutely stunning Mm. national geographic Mm -hmm. level um photography all nature i think from what i've seen is nature but just a beautifully talented family and they're each finding their way to express themselves and I'm, it's just great that he's planning on incorporating Eric's writings and mm-hmm. I'm, I just really want to read it. <laughs> this was so fun. Mm-hmm. I'm glad we got great. to recap what we both felt during the conversation with Donald and the reflections yeah. afterwards. Me too. I, I, I needed it. And I was so, there were so many other questions I 
wanted to ask, and I was also very curious about what you were thinking. So this was this was wonderful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You can find um, Donald Dehaney on Twitter at the Donald North and on Instagram at Donald Dehaney nineteen sixty one. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at Soundlens Podcast. And for more information and episodes, you can visit soundblendspodcast.com. Thanks. Bye. Wonderful. Thanks, Jillian. Bye. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye. Bye.